Alrighty, let's go. Let's go live. Friday afternoon. Go live. Beer o'clock. Go live. Now, I'm trying something different today. Not the beer. The beer as usual. <laughs> I'm trying setting this connection on ultra low latency. So I normally have it on normal. And then there is a, uh, there is an, a low latency setting. And there's an ultra low latency setting. And I was working on the assumption that they had to do with my connection. And I'm like, well, now that I have the fibers and I've actually got proper gigabit, I can do that. But then I think it was referring more to the fact that that is the latency between when I talk and when you see me talk. Now, when I talk and I move something, I can then... Let's time this. What is the math? When I... Uh, when I talk, I can then see myself playing back over there. And the theory is, is that this is meant to be more engaging insofar as you see me close to when I talk. So, ready, what I'm going to do is, there's a stopwatch, go. Now, when I see that phone go up over there and me pressing the button, I can stop it and I can see how long that uh, the delay is. So, bam, eight seconds. Cool. So, I'm about eight seconds in the future right now. I think it works like that. <laughs> Who's joining? Christian. Morning from Norway. Clear skies. Minus six and 40 centimetres. Oh, it's probably 40 centimetres snow. <laughs> okay, I get that. Brian's in uh, in Melbourne. Much warmer in Melbourne at the moment. G'day, George. Fritz, Germany. Slash Netherlands. Very close. <laughs> Two of those. Maybe he's got one foot on each side at the moment. Uh, so Chris does say 40 centimetres of snow. Waiting for spring to thaw everything up. Definitely not a problem we have here. Mark is in grey Brisbane. I did notice, uh, Mark, I was looking a, it was looking a bit dark outside before and I looked at the rain radar and it looked okay. Well, it was not going to be okay here for very long. I'm due a hot tub and a beer, another beer after this. So hopefully it's not going to rain too much, but I can see it is. It does look like it's raining in Brisbane at the moment. Okay, let's jump into it. I've got a lot of stuff today. So it's going to be fun. The car stuff is the most fun thing and the car stuff is the thing that I most frequently have people get upset with me about because it is not infosec. <laughs> so I'm going to do that last. I just realized I was going to publish this blog. I was going to publish a blog post before I uh, spoke. Oh, let's, let's publish it now. We'll publish it now. And that way, by the time I talk later on, about the blog post, it would have been out there. What am I going to say about it now? I've got to tweet something insightful. Because <laughs> in my... Mm. Oh, boy. I started at 4.30 this morning. It is now 4.30 this afternoon. So this is my days at the moment. At the moment. A lot lately. So we're 12 hours in, which is why I might be... We're 12 hours... And about three sips of beer in. So this is not a beer thing. My my mental latency. Stefan's there. Good. Stefan, I'm going to publish the blog post I was talking to you about. Um, what am I going to call it? Did I get all the details right here? Yeah, I normally check all this. Yep, looks fine. Um, okay, what's an insightful tweet? Uh and I thought 99.9, what was the percentage? So this is about Cloudflare Cache Reserve. I'm going to push this out, and then I can talk about later on 
uh, a 99.5, what was it, 99.9, 99.52%. Okay, now what did I get up to? So this is going to make sense in a moment uh, when I talk about it a little bit later on. So we're at 99.52%. Case hit ratio was good. Here, hold my beer emoji because it makes more interesting. Okay, and then I'm going to hit the publish button over here and I'm going to say, yep, publish. Did I publish? Publish. Continue. Final review. Publish right now. This is so going to be worth it. I'll explain it all later on. It is really, really cool. Uh, and I was just waiting until the perfect time to push this out. Okay. Tweet that. All right, good. Glad we had this conversation. <laughs> Let's do sponsor and then we'll jump in all the other stuff. Sponsor again is Collide. We are, we are having a massive Collide run on the sponsorship at the moment. Collide ensures only secure devices can access your cloud apps. It's device trust tailor-made for Okta. Book a demo today. In case you have missed previous episodes, Collide is doing a lot of work around integration with Okta these days, making sure that only your secure devices can get uh, onto your things. If a device isn't secure, it can't access your apps. Achieving zero trust. Designed for Okta. Works on Mac, Winix, Winix, jeez, Mac, Windows, and Linux. Business opportunity for someone there. Someone's probably already got that, winix.com. Anyway, it is making sure that your devices are compliant. So please go and check out Collide. They're doing a great job in uh, sponsoring me, allowing me to do things like write that blog post today, which I'm really excited to talk about. Almost as excited as I am to talk about the McLaren. So anyway, where I was going with all that before I got sidetracked is... I'm leaving the McLaren discussion to last because talking about cars is the thing that most consistently gets people upset that I'm not talking about cybersecurity things. And I don't really care. But I will do it last just in case you want to drop off because you're not interested in cars or that kind of car or that colour or like whatever it is. Okay. Um, Stefan's out walking the dogs. Let's jump into the meaty stuff. <laughs> I feel there's two leading controversial things today, which does make it more fun. Names Co. Now, I was reading this this morning, and I was trying to think of a way to explain this in the headline for today's live stream that wasn't uh, as inflammatory as I originally had in mind. So I just called it, doubling down on stupid <laughs> because because you got to read this now i don't know what it is with names co but they seem to keep popping up in the feed saying stupid stuff now the thread here that got added to this morning because scott helm just messaged me this morning and he's like what exactly did he say i'm sure i can read this uh, it was related to this. It said, uh, where was it? I don't know. Where was it? Maybe he sent me via another channel. But basically, also about <laughs> to the effect of doubling down on stupid. Let's move on. February 1. I have 
quote tweeted a tweet that has since been deleted by the author, so I can't remember exactly what it said. But I did say, using nothing but GIFs, please share your response to Nameco's explanation of certs. And Nameco, using nothing but technical facts, please explain WTF you're talking about. Now, this was inevitably uh, something about certificates. I can't, it's, it's like 2023. This, In fact, that's what Scott said to me this morning. He's like, it's 2023, why are we still having this discussion? But uh, Names Co., if I just read their bio from Twitter here, is domain names, web hosting, website builders, email plans, Office 365 servers, website design services, much more. What they don't mention here is that a large part of uh, certainly my interaction with them has been around certificates and the selling of certificates and the way that they have represented certificates. And this is, again, where it just feels like, it feels like 2015 all over again. When you actually go to the certificates page, they've got all the usual classic stuff. <laughs> I was just laughing because they illustrate it all with padlocks. Uh, you know, starter SSL DV from £7.42p per month. Uh, that has one padlock. Professional SSL OV, that has two padlocks. Premium SSL EV, that has three padlocks. So you know how you get one padlock in your browser? You can get more, <laughs> apparently. Anyway, they said something stupid, which they've since deleted, probably because they realized it was stupid. Uh, and I'm sort of reading down here, and I'd quote tweeted someone here. This is Neil, because <laughs> they had said to Neil, this is, this is uh, definitely from Names Co. We have identified that you're using a free SSL, a free SSL. Free SSLs are a basic level of authentication and are not recommended for businesses. Be a sip where we let that sink in. Switching to a domain verified organization, verified or extended validation to SSL will give you higher protection. Prove your business's legitimacy and gain customer trust. What do you think, like, uh, I, I know we, there are lots of other certificate providers that will give you free certificates these days, not just Let's Encrypt, but Let's Encrypt is domain verified. <laughs> this is the whole point of certificates. There are also SEO advantages to having a more trusted SSL. Reference not provided. Anywho, let's get to the meaty bit, the fun bit. So this is all Feb 3, da, 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 and then we get through to today. And Neil says, here's an update from Namesco. As promised, would really appreciate your professional opinions. Now, exactly how many seconds was it before Scott replied to that? This was 8.32 this morning, my time. Scott is in there all over it at 8.44, so 12 minutes later. He didn't want to let time waste here. Uh, so this is what Namesco has said. This is in the... This URL says, uh, discover the advantages of a paid SSL certificate. I'm going to link to all this when I do the show notes for this. So you'll have links through to Scott's tweets. I won't read all these tweets because I think most of you probably understand what they, what they would be anyway or expect what they'd be. But they've got four headlines here. Number one, longer renewal periods. A paid SSL will be valid for either one or two years, whereas a free one is often only valid for three months. Now, this is the... Long expiration is not a virtue. It's, it's the other way around. Now, Scott has written before, you can Google Scott, uh, um, uh, certificate revocation is broken. And one of the problems we've got is that, that the mechanisms for revocation have fundamental flaws in them. And one of the ways that we protect against a compromised certificate where revocation 
doesn't always work is to have short expiration periods. So if we have a, a certificate that will expire in three months, your worst case scenario is a three month of exposure. If you have one that expires in a year, your worst case scenario is four times longer. And then we automate the process of renewal and the three months doesn't matter. In fact, we'd like it to be less. As Scott has uh, said here, longer renewal periods are bad, which is why the industry is moving towards shorter renewal periods. So a longer certificate isn't something to be proud of. Also, issuing two-year search is a breach of CABF B-R, so I doubt that's accurate. So probably some accuracy problems there. That was number one. Number two, technical support. Paying for an SSL means you are far more likely to have help available if anything goes wrong. It's interesting the way they said far more likely, isn't it? They haven't said you will have support. It's a bit weird. Now, Scott did address this one. He said, if you're paying for technical support, you're paying for technical support. If you're paying for a certificate, you're paying for a certificate. Free certificates have no technical support because certificate has no value. Only the support does. It's just crypto. Are you buying crypto? Oh. It's an odd one. Number three. And this is the one I had an issue with as well. And I've added to Scott's commentary here. Improved validation. Additional checks are carried out before a paid SSL is issued which can be reassuring to your customers. Now, this was always fun in front of a live studio audience where you could actually talk through it and you just see all the light bulbs going in people's heads. You run a shop and you sell widgets and on your widget shop, you have a SSL to, to use their terminology. Now you have a customer coming to buy your widget and that customer is going to be using the SSL and it's going to be either a freed one, freed one, a free one, or a paid one. How does the customer tell the difference? Because they see one padlock, you don't get multiple padlocks, name code, just one padlock. You see one padlock. Now, how does the customer establish whether it is a free certificate or one that you have paid a lot of money for? Let's go through the motions. I've got my blog open over here. Number one, you got to click on the padlock. Also, you can't do that on a mobile device, which is where a hell of a lot of transactions happen these days, because you can't do that in Chrome on the mobile device or Safari. You can only do it on the PC or assumably the Mac as well. So you click on the padlock and then you see some text at the padlock and it says connection is secure, but you've got to keep going. So you click on that and then it still says connection is secure. Okay. And then it says certificate is valid down the bottom. And then you click on that and then you get a whole bunch of technical stuff. Common name, this one was issued by Cloudflare, organization issued by, we got a SHA-256 fingerprint. I can imagine my mum and dad, when they go widget shopping, are really keen to look at the fingerprint or the SHA-256 fingerprint. Uh, there are details. They can then see the certificate hierarchy. And when mum is about to purchase her widget, she can look at that and she can go down to the certificate fields. She can see the certificate signature algorithm uh, and mum will be happy. <laughs> she will have reassurance, which is what Namesco is selling this on. The last one, higher warranty, a paid SSL will offer a much higher warranty than a free one. Well, it's not entirely true because a free one offers no warranty because it doesn't do anything. Another blog post by Scott about uh, warranties. They don't do anything. So I find it entertaining that there's still 
putting this information and like some of it's completely wrong the bit about two years is completely wrong that the the reassurance to customers is completely wrong um but they seem to be able to keep doing it ah uh, those are all the comments here uh what is contextual <laughs> contextual is important Frank says, uh, give me one of those valid for 10 years. Being secure for 10 years would be awesome. Guaranteed secure for many years. And the thing is, like, when it used to be hard work to install a new certificates, uh, uh, a longer period of longevity or, or, or validity would have been a virtue. And I have written before about installing certificates and the pain that I've had to go through. If you Google my name and start SSL, it was painful. It was painful. But we're past that. Tourist says revocation service uh, client certificates up to the central server to make sure the check revocation, what's with the revocation is not up to date. Uh, uh, also says, oh, just buy one to play certificate authority. Uh, okay. Let's go on to a different painful thing. This one's, this one's really, really buggy me. I can't believe it. we don't have a resolution by now. I for fraud. So ironically, a service which is there to help prevent fraud got very pwned. Uh, not just a little bit pwned, very pwned. Now, I want to explain what I mean by very pwned. I actually have an entire thread going on this. I had someone reach out to me, it must have been many weeks ago, saying I've got uh, the Eye for Fraud data breach. Now, I had to go and look it up. I didn't know what that service was. It's not like it was you know, Stripe or something like that. And let's uh, let's just actually have a look at the site. And I don't know what sort of certificate they've got. I don't care. It doesn't matter. What do they do? Guaranteed fraud protection for e-commerce merchants. Approve every last good order. Accept international orders with zero risk. Yeah, well, here we are. Never pay for a chargeback again. Now, there's a verified customer here that's... Testimonial. If I could rate them six plus stars, I would. Excellent customer service and well worth the money. Funny they should mention that because I tried reaching out to their customer service and they didn't want to reply. I tried tweeting them multiple times. In fact, I'll go to my thread here and I'll tell you exactly what I've done because this is the, uh, the whole chronology is in there. And I put the chronology there because I'm certain that someone is going to look at the things that I've said about this and have some questions. So I thought, okay, let's make it, let's make it really, really public. Because I, I do kind of find that the more public these things are, the harder it is to weasel your way out of it. And, uh, okay, here we go. Here we go. This is this is now becoming a saga. So I've tried reaching out to these folks. Uh, a couple of times on the Twitters, I have tried, uh, you can't, I don't think I could DM them. They have closed DMs, but I could send a Facebook messenger to them. I tried that as well. I have tried um, emailing them with the email address that appears on every single one of their pages, sales at iforfraud.com. I tried all of these ways. I waited a long time between these attempts and eventually I got to the point where it's like, I've independently verified this. I've got a very high degree of confidence it's accurate. And since publishing it, I got a, I'm rounding to 100% confident. It's, it's legitimate. So I tried all these avenues, couldn't get in touch with them. 16 million people in this breach. 
And what makes it kind of interesting is that it's a spread of information from different sorts of, let's call it classes of data in the system. So there are customers of Eye for Fraud. So people that log on to Eye for Fraud. In fact, if you look at the front page, there is a login link with a padlock right at the top. That obviously sits on top of a user's table. I think that was the right name. And if you go in and you go to the login page and you go to password reset and you start putting email addresses from the user's table, they all come back and go, yeah, this person exists. We've just sent you a reset email. If you fat finger a different address that doesn't exist, it comes back and says that person doesn't exist. So enumeration vector on login was a very, very solid proof. The transactions, there are a huge number of transactions. My reading of this, and I can only go on what I have concluded from the data because they won't answer any of my messages to be able to explain if I'm right or not. My reading of it is, is that when the I for fraud service is used on another website, the transaction is sent for I for fraud, sent to I for fraud, and they do some sort of uh, AI magic. They probably call it AI because everyone calls everything AI now. Incidentally, I have been writing a lot of code with ChatGPT. It's the last couple of days. I found it really, really useful. I'll talk about that later if you like. So anywho, the transaction goes off to IFA fraud. It gets saved in a database. And if you think about what happens when you make a transaction online, you enter your name, you enter your email address, you enter your phone number, uh, you are connecting from an IP address, you're buying a product, you probably provide a credit card. All of that information gets sent to IFA fraud. Last four digits and card type, just to be clear, not the whole pan. So IFA fraud gets that, they do some verification, and I assume they send back some sort of a response. Someone did actually find the API docs and sent that to me as well, and that seems to support that assertion. So imagine you're Joe Average Consumer, and you're going to a website to buy a T-shirt. And this is like T-shirts are us. And you go there and you buy your T-shirt and unbeknownst to you, but you did agree to it in the terms and conditions you didn't read, your personal info is sent off to I for fraud and it goes into their database as part of the transaction and the verification that's legit. Now, you've got no idea that your data has gone for I for fraud. To I for, why do I keep saying that? To I for fraud. Years later, I for fraud has a data breach, exposes your data. You, along with 16 million other people, end up in Have I Been Pwned, you get an email from me during the week, and you're like, who the hell are these guys? Because the problem is, this is one of these services where the relationship is not with you, the consumer, the relationship is with their customer, and then their customer has the relationship with you, the consumer. So it's one degree removed from the vast majority of people in this breach. There is a direct connection between the folks that had an account on I for fraud, but as far as I'm concerned, it's a data breach. There's a bunch of email addresses in there. I don't care how they got in there. You're all now part of the one great big mix of people in this breach. So let's see what's happened here. Uh, hard to get in touch with. I did publish a, a, a few other reconciliation things in here as well. So in the transactions table, there's a list of, they called it, uh, was it website? Uh, site name. A list of site names. These are the sites using the Eye for Fraud service, as best I can tell. And it's things like the site Lovely Skin appears over and over and over again. And then you go to their customers page and there's a testimonial from Lovely Skin. Lovely Skin says, Since going with Eye for Fraud, we've tripled our international orders. 
After I tweeted, and this is why I think I for fraud is paying a little bit more attention than what they'd like to admit. After I tweeted this, that testimonial disappeared from the I for fraud website quite quickly, which is interesting. But you can still find on archives.org, of course. So that's happened. Now, we scroll down a bit further. People are confused. Why is my data there? So I went and restored the transactions table or orders table. I can't remember what it was the name. Uh, restored that into a MySQL instance and extracted out all of the distinct site names with a count next to them and dropped it all into a gist. Now, just as an example of volumes here, the number one website in that data breach was Lovely Skin. 3.3 million transactions. Not necessarily 3.3 million customers, because I assume one customer can make multiple transactions. But it would be reasonable to say, without having actually done the math, there's probably a seven-figure number of Lovely Skin customers in that breach. Now, this makes it very, very awkward for Lovely Skin, because what do they do? Lovely Skin needs an explanation from I for Fraud. So I for Fraud, and I'm sure the question's been asked by now because clearly I for Fraud is aware of the issue. So I for Fraud needs to tell Lovely Skin, these are the customers that were impacted and this is the data that was impacted. Lovely Skin then needs to go back to that seven-figure number of customers and say, hey, really sorry, we used a partner, the third party had a data breach, uh, you've been exposed, here's what's happened, I need theft protection for all, yada, yada, yada. But it's not just lovely skin. The total number here is there are 1,670 unique records in that site name column. Now, a bunch of them have like one transaction. Young Meat Productions. Sounds legit. One of them is testing. Another one is testee. Another one is testing mund. And then a whole bunch of them only have one and there's two. And then it's just, it's, it's like the typical sort of long tail. But let's just, let's just say, how many have a hundred or more? There are 1,087 different services that have a hundred or more transactions in this breach. So imagine the pressure that now puts on eye for fraud the number of organizations they've got to disclose to, and then the number of individuals those organizations have got to disclose to. This is an absolute mess. And, and to be honest, I'm actually shocked this hasn't been picked up in the press. I should talk to some people about this. <laughs> this deserves some, some exposure. Now, because I tweeted that gist, a bunch of people have been going through it and figuring out who was exposed. So, for example, and I've got this here in my thread, someone here, TJ Markham, says uh, it was De Bruno Bros., uh, who appears to be a clothing manufacturer. They've figured it out. Uh, there's another lady here who does a, a podcast. She seems to have been in the lovely skin uh, side of the breach. So she says um, she's DM'd lovely skin and is awaiting a response. She also says, aren't the sites involved required by law to notify us? Well, first of all, those sites have actually got to know that there was an issue. And short of their customers who've gotten have I been pay notifications letting them know, well, they, they don't know because I for fraud hasn't told them. Ah, it's a mess. It's a mess. And I'm sort of shocked. What day did I load this data? I loaded this four days ago. I'm sort of shocked 
Nothing has really happened since then. There was an acknowledgement down here from someone that said uh, they got an acknowledgement from a service that they've used, that they are aware of the incident, uh, and it was something about dealing with it, I think. But, man, that's just crazy, isn't it? I would hope that by the time we do this next week, several things have happened. Uh, number one, every one of those organisations has been notified that their customers are being exposed. Number two, those organisations notify their individuals. Number three, get some press. Because this, this feels like it's just slipping under the radar at the moment. <sighs> All right, thanks for comments. Um, where are we up to here? Fritz says, for a moment, I thought you were referring to the colour of the kitchen when you said, I can't believe. So I tweeted a couple of uh, digital mock-ups of the kitchen yesterday and one of them we, we were intending to make the kitchen very very white and then between charlotte and the and the the joinery folks who we, we have a huge amount of confidence in by the way they sort of figured out that maybe it looked better darker and i put the two photos out there asked people i I, th I think there's a clear bias towards the dark kitchen but we'll see i'll get photos of it when it's all done I found a little bit funny. A few people went off. Oh, if it's dark, it'll sort of, you know, if you don't have much light in there, it'll feel a bit. You should see how much light comes into that area. Like we get blasted by the sun. So, no, that's not going to be a problem. Cloudflare Cache Reserve. All right. So, we've caught back up to the start of the podcast. Where we're talking about Cloudflare. So, this one. Uh, it's something Stefan's been involved in as well. If he's back from walking his dog, he can join in this. But uh, basically, Pain Passwords runs behind Cloudflare. I've written a lot before in the past about the volumes of requests that are coming through to Pain Passwords and the cache hit ratio. And I, I guess what we're, we're sort of quite excited about... Stefan's back. Good. What we're quite excited about... And keep in mind as well, like all of Pwn Passwords is open source. You can get all the code, you can get all the data. There is absolutely no monetization route to it. It's just, it's just there to do good stuff. Uh, so, so I think we all feel a little bit warm and fuzzy about uh, Pwn Passwords. And, and Stefan has done a huge amount of work on this uh, of his own free volition, on his own free time, without anything other than love <laughs> from community. For the, you do get some good material to talk to. I'll uh, talk about at your two NDC talks this year. So hopefully this will help add to that. But uh, it has been fun to see how big it's getting and also how high the case hit ratio has been. And that the number that we've sort of had for quite some time now is 99 point something percent case hit ratio. And in fact, in this blog post, I talk about 99.52%. Uh, and last year, in fact, I was talking about 99.52% case hit ratio. Isn't that awesome? We're so, so happy about this. Now, if I go and have a look at, uh, where are we? This blog post, which has just gone out. I called it to infinity and beyond because I like having fun names. When I look at the blog post, or rather that the tweet I've shared from, from last year, May 24 last year, we just hit 2 billion requests. 99.52% case hit ratio. Now, how do you fill the last gap? And without going back into the whole details about how Pwn passwords and K-anonymity works, we've really only got like just over a million possible requests for SHA-1 hashes. We've now got the NTLM ones as well, so there's just over a million possibilities there. 
we can do a massive amount of caching for that finite set of requests at Cloudflare. But Cloudflare, with their tiered caching model, they have caching on the edge in their hundreds of edge nodes around the world, and there is cache eviction. So at some point in time, based on their own internal logic, they're going to boot something out of the cache because it hasn't been requested recently or they need more capacity or, or whatever else. And when it's booted out of cache, the next time someone requests that, it's going to go all the way through the origin server, Azure Functions running in the West Coast US data center. It's going to pull that piece of data back. It's going to bring it back to Cloudflare, going to cache it again and then return it to the person that requested it. So getting a higher cache hit ratio than 99.52% was always going to be an uphill battle. And then I was speaking to someone at Cloudflare the other day and they said, hey, check this out. We've got this new thing in beta called Cache Reserve. And it's like another tier in the caching, but it works quite differently because it basically just drops data into R2. And R2 is Cloudflare's data storage mechanism it implements the same sort of APIs as S3 storage on, on not on Azure, on Amazon. Uh, just imagine it is a place to dump your files. Now, I had actually been using R2 for a while because I had taken a lot of data off Azure when you used to be able to download all the hashes, and I'd put it in R2 because it was frankly a lot cheaper than running it in Azure. So I had a bit of a, an awareness of it. But what Cache Reserve does, there, there are a few little caveats and they're things like you've got to return a proper cache header. Uh, it only supports certain file types. But if you satisfy these things and you're enabled for the beta, so they had to turn it on for us, you go in and you go, yes, please make it work now. And then that's it. And you go and you have a beer and everything just automatically works in the background. So when I look at my Cloudflare dashboard now, let's actually go and have a look for, uh, in fact, I was, I was just in Have I Been Pwned. If I go into caching, and under there, there's Cache Reserve Beta. Uh, and there is a little button here you can press, and it says Enable Storage Sync. Now, that is something that we had already done for Pwned Passwords. And what it now means is, if you think about having your existing tiered caching, so tiered caching is kind of what it sounds like you have multiple layers of caching and sometimes things are here and then they flow through to the other one and then depending on certain circumstances a little bit black magic but it does a lot of caching so instead of just having those on your edge nodes now you're dropping in in the middle this repository of, of storage and what it means is that once we enable this if the request comes in it goes through the existing tiered caching and it's like oh it doesn't exist it can then go and pull it out of cache reserve. If it's not in cache reserve, we'll pull it from the origin, drop it in cache reserve, and then drop it in the tiered caches as well. And what it means is eventually, say for pwn passwords, we will end up with everything in cache reserve until we need to flush a particular path. Uh, so we flush a path every time we get a new password, say from the FBI. They drop it in there, it changes one of the hash ranges. We then tell Cloudflare, flush that cache, gets deleted out of R2 storage, cache reserve, uh, and then it gets deleted out of the other edge nodes. But then the new one gets requested and flows through. So what it all means is we turned this on about nine days ago now. And instead of having 99.52%, which uh -huh, is about... 5,000 requests per million hitting the origin, we now have, this is like the drum roll moment, we now have 
99.999% of requests come from cash. It's more than that, actually. It's 99.9998% of requests come from cash and don't hit the origin, which is just a stunningly high number. It's so stunningly high that it is about two requests in every million. So we've gone from like 5,000 requests in every million to two <laughs> requests in every million. So, Stefan, I, th I think we can say we got two and a half thousand times better at our caching. Let's look at it that way, right? We got two and a half thousand times better at caching. So, Stefan wants a beer. It's early for him, but he wants a beer because he's done a good job. He deserved that beer. So this is this is really really awesome. And what's even more awesome about it, uh, and Stefan hasn't seen this blog post till now. Cloudflare hasn't seen this blog post from now either. So hopefully they're reading this now and they're going, oh, that was pretty cool. We didn't know that was coming. But um, what's really, really cool about it is that we will get much better. We will get it from two requests in every million down to about one request in every million. And it's, it seems almost funny when we've just gone from like 5,000 to two and then we're like, I know we can do better. <laughs> you know, I know we can get to one. The reason why is because we still only have by my logic, around about half of all the possible requests in case reserve. So we will get more in there as people make requests that don't get served by the tiered caching on the edge nodes and end up flowing through to the origin, picks up from the origin, and it's like, okay, I'm going to jump in in case reserve now, and then it will flow back through the edge nodes and back to ultimately the requester. So why is this so cool? Just to be a little bit more serious about it for a moment. Um, Look, I mean, there's a cost thing I've said here. It's costing $2.01 a day by my calculation, which isn't just – it's costing us that on Cloudflare, but it's actually taking a bunch of costs away from Azure, which is almost certainly more than that. I haven't figured it out exactly. But it, it's not that. It's more that we're becoming less and less dependent on the Origin service and more and more dependent on Cloudflare serving it from hundreds of nodes around the world. And that, that's really good in terms of resiliency. It's really good in terms of speed because if we can serve it from within their network without having to go out to Azure, and particularly if we can serve it from an edge node close to the people requesting it, then that's great because it's just so freaking fast. And then the other thing that makes it really cool is, you know, May last year we were doing 2 billion requests a month. We're now doing 3 and a quarter billion requests a month. And that is just a crazy high number. And I noticed also, and you might actually spot this if you have a look at one of the graphs here but we seem to be really ticking up higher than we've ever seen before just in the last day so i'm looking at now we've done 165 million requests in the last 24 hours which is just nuts that's a, that's such a huge volume and i'm so happy about it because we can do it for free it makes a really big difference to the strength of the passwords that people choose when they're signing up to these services so um, that's that. Stefan deserves a beer. <laughs> I deserve another beer, uh, which we'll have to wait, I think, until I get in the hot tub very soon. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's cool. Like, it is super, super cool, and it is so easy. And I, I think that's a, that is very often the, the, like the MI with Cloudflare. It's like, how do you just flick the switch and it works? How do we just flick the switch and we get, you know, anything from – HTTP2 to TLS to WAF to DDoS to protect, like we just, we flick the switch in the dashboard and it works. Uh, so massive kudos to Cloudflare for that. Fritz says, have I been paying showing exponential growth? 
At times, yeah. Um, you know, other than my tweets, I don't have a lot of historical data about pwn passwords because the the graphs on Cloudflare only go back about a month. But uh, yeah, we can look at it and go, hey, you know, May last year, sorry, ten months ago, it was doing two million something. So we've grown uh, more than fifty percent in ten months, which is really really good. So. Yeah, who knows where it'll go? I, I'm actually kind of fascinated about this. Now, of course, one of the things that does make it grow even more is we have gotten rid of the old uh, downloading of the the sort of the monolithic zips of, of all the passwords. <clears throat> In fact, as part of this exercise yesterday morning, I finally, I, I literally just removed the C name for downloads.pwnpasswords.com. So you cannot download those files anymore. So you have to go and use the Pwn Passwords downloader. And the downloader just mass enumerates the API endpoint. So because of that, we are actually seeing more requests than what we would have before because the downloader makes API requests. But I'm quite happy with that. It's worked out really, really well because, it's, in fact, I had someone messaging me today and they're like, where's the downloads? I want to down download the downloads because I don't know what version you're up to. So I don't know what version you're up to because it changes every day because the feds are feeding so many passwords into it. So... That's good. You shouldn't need to know the version. And if you're worried about it, hit the API. Solves your problem. You don't have to download stuff. Surface says, I'm amazed at how the ratio actually went. Was expecting improvement, but this exceeded my expectations by a lot. Yeah, I mean, both of us, right? Like we we were sitting on our respective corners of the world. Uh, Stefan's in Iceland. Uh, I am I am in obviously in Australia, and we're just chatting backwards and forwards going, oh, this looks cool. Let's just turn it on and see what happens. And we didn't expect it to be this awesome. So uh, also a big thank you to Cloudflare for supporting this. I don't believe they're going to pass the $2.01 cost onto me because they have been supporting, have I been pwned for many, many years now. So, so that is awesome. Speaking of awesome, let's do the last thing. The McLaren. Ah. Now, where do you begin? None of these things happen overnight. Uh, I, I shared some tweets Friday last week, so this is a week ago now. And one of the tweets, and in fact, it was quite fun because I shared it, and, and someone popped up and they found a tweet of mine from six years ago saying that I'm beginning to covet this car. This is something that, that I had coveted for a very, very long time. And... We all have different things that drive us. Um, okay, funny. All the different things that motivate us. And one of the things that that has always motivated me since I started work was, was cars. Not that cars are sort of the, the end goal and then you get the car and it's job done, we're happy uh, on to the next thing. It's, it's more that I have enjoyed wanting something for a very long period of time, working towards it and then obtaining it. And... When I think of each of the cars I've had in the last, let's say, 25 years, um, it has always been something like that. The, the the Nissan GTR, I've still got the R35. I bought that 10 years ago now. And it also shows you how often I rotate cars. But from the moment I saw that, <clears throat> in I think 2007, we saw the first designs of it, I had just coveted that car and it took me six years before I was in a position to be able to do that and it's very much the same with the McLaren or it had been something that I just loved and loved and loved and loved uh, and 
Funnily enough, there's not a next thing at the moment. I might need to, I don't know, maybe I need to find something else. But that had been something that was a massive goal in life. And for various reasons and circumstances, it wasn't until now that the timing was right. So I had tweeted over Christmas, I remember, because I was in Singapore at the time for Christmas, and I I'd, I'd tweeted, and I had not made up my mind by then, honestly. And I said to people, uh, I did a poll, you know, uh, what would you get? And it was like there was the McLaren 720S in there, which we've now bought, uh, Lamborghini Huracan, Ferrari F8, and just as a wild card, I threw in a McLaren 600LT. Now, the wild card didn't rate too high, but the other three were just like line ball all the way through. It was it was within a fraction of 1% of the difference splitting the votes. And it's not that I'm going to go all Elon Musk and go and make life decisions based on Twitter polls, but I was just really fascinated to hear what people said. And there were some people out there that had one of these vehicles or had had one of those cars and they, they had good feedback. And there really wasn't anything to, to, to split it one way or the other. So eventually there are a number of things that made the McLaren just make a lot more sense than the others. And, and to be honest, that, that was sort of the emotional connection I had, but I wanted to, I wanted to quantify it. Uh, a bunch of different things. Uh, and it was everything from the ergonomics are, are really good. I'm six foot five. I need room. <laughs> I fit in there well. I do not fit in Lamborghinis. Oh, that sounds like such a first world problem, doesn't it? I do not fit in Lamborghinis well. We had a, um, a Ventador for a little while in Vegas a few years ago, and it was it was just an ergonomic nightmare. So there's that. Storage uh, is terrible. And I know I'm talking about very practical things for something that is anything but practical by any other reasonable measure. Uh, but the storage is terrible. I remember a friend of mine got a Huracan when they first launched, and he was in. This was in LA, and I remember going along with my backpack, and he's like, "I'm really not sure where we're going to put the backpack <laughs> because there's just not enough room." And the McLaren, you could fit a body in the front of it. Uh, it's it's got a massive amount of space, and the reason why that's important is because I want to go and be able to pick a kid up from school. Oh, I dropped Ari off this morning. He had his school backpack, his tennis backpack, he's like his lunchbox, his swimming bag. He had so much stuff. And I want to be able to pick him up and he's not wearing it on his lap. It has doors that go like this. That's a big thing. <laughs> it's a big thing because cars like this are very much theatre. Now, inevitably, when you, you ask a question around something like this, you get a bunch of bullshit responses. That's probably the most charitable I can put it. A bunch of people will be like, go and get a Tesla Model S, it's faster. It's like, what? <laughs> it's like, first of all, it's not because the McLaren does 341 kilometers an hour. You mean quicker at a low speed. It's, it's just a, such a weird semantic thing. No one's cross-shopping supercars and Teslas. Um, where was I going with this? The theater. The thing that makes it so much different, and I didn't fully realize this until we got it, is... Everyone's looking at it, and it's not that you want to be there as a center of attention. This wasn't the point at all. But everyone's like, oh, that is so cool. Everyone's giving you a thumbs up. Everyone wants to see the doors open because it looks so cool. This was where I was getting to originally. This was what was so cool in, in the 80s with things like a, a Countach. You know, everyone my age back then when I was, I guess, Ari's age now, was like they'd want a poster of a Countach on the wall and then, then later the Diablo because it was the doors and it, was, it looked so cool. There's just something about that that makes theatre. Uh, Charlotte's only bumped her head on the door twice <laughs> so far getting out because it's literally above your head. Um, there is a dealership that we drive past pretty much every day. Uh, 
which is great. Lamborghinis up in Brisbane, they didn't have any cars to drive. We went into the one here on the Gold Coast, the, Lamb uh, the McLaren dealership, and they're like, sure, you can drive a car. Here you go. So, okay, that's good. And in fact, when I did the test drive, we, we went out through the roads that I've been driving for decades now. Every time I want a spirited drive, uh, and we went out for about an hour and just just drove, and it was it was awesome. We had wanted. I'll finish with the the pros and cons first. The the only thing that the Lambo ultimately had over the McLaren was the engine noise. <coughs> the McLaren's a bit flat. It's actually nice on a cold start. Sounds good on a cold start, but <coughs> that Lambo V10 is just. Like, I can be here at home and a kilometre away, I can hear it. Now, if you're an EV fan, this is not going to make any sense to you, but just believe me, it sounds cool. <laughs> I hear it a kilometre away, and it's it's epic. I love the noise of it. But that that was the only thing it had going for it. It didn't have any of the other things. Now, one of the things I've realised a lot as well is there's just something about the look of the McLaren. It's like the swoopy lines, the fact there's no air intakes on the side because they're behind, like, the skin of the door. It's so low and wide and flat. Even when you drive it, and mind you, the Huracan's like this as well, you you really can't see the front of the car. You just see the bottom of the window and then it just drops off. It's so short on the front, but it's so, so, so wide. So uh, all of those things were just massive bonuses for the McLaren. And I'd thought, look, you know, we've got a, a black, R35, the GTR, the AMG is a dark grey. There's just something about dark colours that I've just typically liked. It's me all wearing black T-shirts the whole time. And that's kind of what we're keen on. And um, we went to the dealership and they're like, yeah, look, we've got a dark grey one handy. Now, mind you that the last 720S rolled off the production line a few weeks ago, so they're not making any more now. There'll be what people think will be a 750S soon, which will be an, a minor evolution of that. But they had the yellow one available for a drive. So that was the one that Charlotte and I both went out with the bloke from the dealership and drove. And I sort of drove it, and I really wasn't thinking much about the colour because I'm just like, what's the driving experience like? And I drive it, and I come back, and then Charlotte goes out, and she drives it. And she comes back, and she's like, you know, it's for sale. I was like, huh. But it's yellow. <laughs> no, it's not yellow. It's volcano yellow. And I hadn't really thought about having a yellow car. And honestly, one of the things that sold me on it is I, I took a photo of Charlotte in the car because it just, the two of them together looked awesome. And I sent it to Ari, our 13-year-old son, and he's like, whoa, you cannot miss that. It's like, he's right. You can't miss that. That's cool. That's really cool. And it's not really just a yellow. The volcano yellow, it has this sparkle all the way through it. And when you're out in the sunlight, and it's almost always sunlight here, you're out in the sunlight and it's just, it just shimmers. It's such a, it's so not what I would have bought had it not been for Charlotte saying, this looks really good. <laughs> we should get this. So we bought the car. We have not been able to bring it home yet because of the work in the garage. Now I tweeted some stuff before about uh, the ubiquity AI camera. So we've got the AI 360 camera in the middle of the garage. Garage is an absolute freaking mess. Work is going really, really well. And we will have it here permanently very soon but we haven't been able to bring it home because it's not just because of the work in the garage but we had new tiles laid and then you can't drive on the tiles for between one to two weeks and we've just been playing this waiting game 
so we we had to pick it up by the end of Feb. So we picked it up on the last day of Feb. Uh, we went out for a five-hour drive. It was awesome. And then we just dropped it back at the dealership. And then we picked it up on Friday uh, last week and then picked the kids up, which was hilarious watching their result. Now, when I say we picked the kids up, it's two-seater. So we had to take two cars to the school. But it was just hilarious seeing the responses. Uh, and I was actually super, super impressed at how excited our 10-year-old daughter, Elle, was. Like, she's she's the most excited about it. She's like, I want you dropping me off in school in this car every day, right at the front so everyone can see it because it looks so cool. And this is the this is the reaction everyone gives. They're just like, this is so freaking cool. We, we parked it outside here for a little bit on Friday last week and we we're talking to neighbours about it. And they're like, that's just, that's like art. Which brings me to the whole point of the garage. So we started, we'd planned to do the garage work anyway. We have gotten a little bit carried away with it. But part of what we're doing is like opening a great big window up from the house into the garage so that you can see the art. You know, and the McLaren will be there and then the GTR behind it. And it will look amazing. I've shared some video of garage renderings, which have changed quite a bit since then. But we will walk past every single time I go from my office downstairs or we go up to the bedrooms or anything. We'll walk past this big window in this room that was a garage and is now sort of an extension of the house with cool lighting and we'll see that car and that will be the art. So everyone's gone really silent. (laughs) If you have any questions... Now that we're on the low latency mode related to McLaren supercars, so on and so forth, drop them in the comment section. I'll uh, I'll be able to share a lot more photos once we actually get it home and we can use it um, in a more normal way. And particularly when we get the garage stuff done. Look, we're, we're not going to have all of that done for a couple of months, but we're, at least we'll be in a position where we can have it home very soon. And, uh, and it will be good. Joel says, I'm not going near that car. So it's uh, it's insured. <laughs> it's very insured, which is kind of one of the first things. And um, I've just found with with uh, look, we've we've had nice cars before. This is definitely on a different level, but we've had nice cars. We've always driven them a lot. I've always, you know, I, I don't think we'll be parking this one at the shops as much, for example, but. Uh, say with with the, the GTR, it's like, I'm going to drive it, I'm going to park it at the shops, I'm going to go and get the groceries because I, I want to be able to use it. I want to be able to go out and enjoy it. I don't want to just put it in a garage and not get to not get to have the the pleasure of it myself and not get to see the excitement other people get. Uh, it's it's much more so now in the McLaren, but even the GTR, every time you drive it, there's people taking photos of it, pointing at it, uh, yeah, kids excited. I tell you, oh, geez, the day we got the McLaren, <laughs> we took it for a drive up through the mountains and into, for folks of you from this part of the world, took it up through um, uh, Numanbar Valley, down to New South Wales, through into Mwoolumba. And, and this is a very sort of country town area. And we got there right as everyone from school was coming out and just the reaction from the kids and so many like smiling, happy, excited faces. They were losing their shit. And it was so much fun for us. And having been that kid so many times, I know I would have gone home and told mum and dad about it and just, just been thinking about it for the rest of the day. So that, that was really, really good fun. Brendan says, any tech features to note? So 
I wrote a blog post after I got the GTR about 10 years ago, and I called it, I think I called it the technology of speed. Jeez, how long ago was that? I'll look it up now. And I wrote about all the tech stuff because the GTR was always such a high-tech car. Troy Hunt, technology of speed. Um, 16th of July, 2013. Look at that. Nearly bang on a decade ago. Wow. Um, so there are a lot of tech things with the McLaren. It's everything from the suspension. Uh, it is not a traditional uh, anti-roll bar style setup where the movement of one wheel impacts the movement of the other wheel, which has always been a very efficient way of keeping a car flatter when you corner. Uh, it has independently actuated suspension on each corner. I've, I've watched videos and read diagrams on it, and I still don't completely understand it, but like when the fluid compresses in one side, it then pushes the fluid through to the other side and extends. I'll probably write something up on that. That's super cool. The aero is really cool. The coolest thing about the aero is it has an air brake, which means that the rear spoiler, when you get on the brakes really heavy, it just just flips up into the airflow. So what's cool about that is like you'd be up in the mountains or something like that, braking hard for a corner, and suddenly your rear view mirror is just all yellow because the yellow rear wing is just flicked up like that. That's super cool. The McLaren philosophy is that nothing should impact the driving experience like as a as a brand as a philosophy ferrari is very much about the emotion and the history and the prestige and everything lamborghini seems to be very much about the ostentatiousness and the noise and everything and mclaren seems to be very much about the technology and just the the pure driving experience so for example there are no buttons on the steering wheel not a single button can't do the volume can't do anything like that you look at a ferrari and they've got Manatino's little dials and things to change things. The indicators there on the on the wheel. That's their philosophy. McLaren is like, get away everything that distracts from the driving, to the extent where the dash, when you go into race mode, actually folds down. So normally on your dash you see a big speedo, you'll see, uh, you know, various other TFT style stuff that you see on most cars these days. But you go race mode, it folds down, and all you see is RPM and speed, <laughs> and that's it. So you go into just this like pure, pure driving mode. The, uh, the, the, the cool thing I sort of mentioned before is if you look at a photo of the 720s, you see no air intakes on the side. So yeah, these days, let's say the Ferrari, the, the F8, uh, it's turbocharged. It's got massive air intakes that needs to get air into those intercoolers and into the engine in order to make the power. Um, and they sit on the outside and they're very overtly facing. Uh, even the Huracan has got air intakes, even though it's naturally aspirated. Uh, and they're quite obvious. The McLaren sort of puts them inside the door sills. So when you open up the door, you can see that the air flows down between like an outer skin on the door and the normal door and then flows down through these intakes. And it just looks, it just makes it look super, super smooth. There's a gazillion other things, Brendan, which I will have to go back through. <laughs> and start to write about even stuff like you look at it from the back and you literally just see the gearbox hanging out the back of the car like it's not covered up it's not hidden it's just it's just hanging there exposed i guess they get a lot of airflow through it that way so yeah lots of uh lots of things like that Stefan says love the fact that everything i've seen of that mclaren just brings out smiles yeah it does it does it, it really does and now it doesn't have wi-fi Get lost. <laughs> that does not have Wi-Fi. One of the here's my main gripe with it. As far as 
like infotainment stuff goes, or like, like CarPlay. There's no CarPlay. I love CarPlay in the Mercedes. I love plugging my phone in, I get all my maps and things. It doesn't have that. It has the sound of the indicators could be the cheapest car you could ever buy. And it's stuff like that. But I was sort of, because Charlotte was like, you know, it's a, it's a premium car. Like, why doesn't it have CarPlay? Well, they make, I don't know how many McLaren makes per year. Let's say it's, it's single-digit thousands, 720Ss per year. Uh, now, the investment required to integrate CarPlay is the same whether they sell 5,000 of them or 500,000. Meanwhile, Toyota makes Corolla, and they sell a gazillion of them. And they get to spread that investment out over a huge, huge, huge volume. So I think the fact the 720S came out in 2017, which was, you know, if you sort of figure out when they were designing it all, it was early days, I guess, for CarPlay. Probably explains why it doesn't have that, but it, it does feel like an emission. Uh, and it, it is one of those things where you go, well, stuff that you find in so many other cars isn't there. It has the sort of bird's eye view of reversing cameras, but it doesn't look neat. Like the edges are all square. It's so much nicer on our AMG E63. Uh, it's, it's like little stuff like that. Uh, so no, it does not have Wi-Fi or anything like that. Ben says the garage sounds very Iron Man. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit Iron Man, <laughs> James Bond. It is looking cool. We decided today we're going to put some uh, Sonos speakers in there as well. And we're, we're changing one of the doors so it becomes a big sliding door and it opens out to the rest of the house. But yeah, it looks awesome. Joel says, oh, it's a nice road, but it can be scary on a motorbike for the people who are not around here in Narang Wollombar Road. Yeah, so I used to ride that on a motorbike a lot, and you're right. Uh, there are a lot of signs there now. I always find them quite funny because the signs with the motorbike and then the lines that all squiggle. I don't know how you do that on a bike. Uh, I can guess. <laughs> but we, as, uh, as Joel would probably know, we have had a lot of motorcycle deaths uh, lately. It just seems to be a, a, a way too high number. And the, the problem is, particularly for those who have ridden bikes before and driven cars on, on these sorts of roads, is when, when you're on a bike, you have so little margin for error. Uh, if you do put a wheel off the edge of the road because you've run a little bit wide or a car's come around a corner, you've had to avoid it, you have so little grip. Um, if it gets a little bit damp, you have so little grip. Uh, and if you do come off, it's like your meaty, fleshy stuff inside some leather flying around it however fast you're going. If you're in a car, you've got so much more traction, you've got so much more protection. The bikes, they were so much fun, but I'm glad that <laughs> it's behind me now. Seven, is there aftermarket upgrades available for it? So, yes, uh, like every car there are. Uh, one thing I had considered is the exhaust. I do, the GTR is modified. It is so loud, so much fun. Uh, the problem is that as soon as you start modifying a car, you do, you do potentially have warranty issues. So I've usually modified my high-performance cars um, certainly the, the, the GTR and the Subarus I had before then. I don't think I'm going to do that with McLaren. I like having all the warranty <laughs> because it not only is it a pricey thing to go wrong if something does go wrong, so it's nice to have warranty, um, but uh, also one of the things that McLaren do seem to regularly come up with when you basically Google what's wrong with McLaren is defects. And the defects are very often things like panel gap. If you change your exhaust, they're not going to deny your warranty on panel gap. But I just worry that if everyone needs support on that and you've modified the exhaust and then it's run too lean or something like that, you, 
yeah, that's an expensive car to go wrong. So I actually don't think we're going to be doing anything aftermarket with this car. Uh, my feeling with all these cars is I think that we'll be we'll be keeping the E63 for a long time because it's absolutely perfect. It's, I guess, five years old now, but it's absolutely perfect. It sounds epic. There's nothing else I can think of that I want to replace it with. The GTR, I think, we'll keep for a very long time because it's going to get into that classic space, right? And the McLaren, I, I feel, we'll keep for a few years and then... There'll be an all-new model, not the 750S. It'll be a whole new platform. It'll almost certainly be hybrid like the Artura is, which is the replacement for the entry-level McLarens. It will probably have CarPlay, which will be really nice. And then we'll go and we'll just spec the colour, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll make it exactly what we want as opposed to being a new car, which was on the showroom floor, and it was we're very, very happy with it. But I think it would be really, really nice to be able to go, hey, this is exactly what we want, and then you wait for ages for it to come and... And that would be exciting. So that's, uh, yeah, that, that's what I think will happen. We'll see. Okay, folks, on that note, I'm going to wrap it up there. Uh, it's definitely hot tub time. It has been a successful day. Uh, go and have a read of that Cloudflare blog post. Um, buy Stefan a beer. If you, man has deserved some beer because he's done a really, really good job on this. And we are super, super proud of just how, how well this service has performed and, and how much people are using it. So uh, thank you, everyone, that's, that's supporting it and perhaps encouraging other people to use it. And uh, let's just take some guesses on when we're going to be seeing 4 billion requests in a month. So thanks very much, folks, and I will catch you later.